Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today I'm joined by Dale Williams, where we're going to talk about tackling the Unalga race, one of the fiercest tide races in Alaska's Aleutian Island chain. So with that, enjoy today's episode with Dale Williams. Hi, Dale. Welcome to Paddling the Blue today. Thanks for having me. Ah, I appreciate you joining me, so thank you. So, Dale, tell us a little bit about your personal paddling background. How did you get started in the paddling world? Uh, it was through a relationship, um, a woman, Debbie Kearney. I was interested in her, and she was a paddler. Oh. <laughs> so where yeah. where just where did you get your start? In Georgia, Tybee Island on the coast there. So I had uh, I had uh, left the Air Force uh, where I'd been 10, 12 years in in Europe, and I needed to uh, needed to sort out and reacclimate to the U.S. So I uh, I headed for Crested Butte. But I stopped in Tybee along the way to see Debbie, and uh, that led to a, a long-distance relationship, and, and finally uh, she won. I moved to Tybee. So what, what is it about, is there something other than Debbie about Tybee that really captures your imagination? So pretty soon what I found about Tybee is that, um, well, I, I mean to get it in sequence, uh, when I moved to Tybee, I needed to find something to do in the outdoors that, <laughs> uh, instead of skiing and paragliding. So, uh, so I took up Debbie's sport of sea kayaking, and what I found pretty quickly is that it was really a, a perfect uh, environment for learning and teaching intermediate sea kayaking skills. It was a fantastic area that we named the Triangle that... It's a river mouth tide race, uh, sand bottom area that has good current and good surf. Just a great training area. All right. So you're an instructor now. So tell us a little bit about your, your life as an instructor. Well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't start off that way. I started off with a great interest in organized learning and teaching, if you will. So when I was in the Air Force, I, I worked as a controller and a in the, the Air Force air-to-air program. So there was a was a good model there for a lot of teaching, very structured learning. And from there, I went on to seek outdoor activities. And, and, uh, and so I followed that same sort of intense, organized training. Uh, and when I, when, I went, when I moved to Tybee, there was no one there who was, well, there were a few people, but, uh, but mostly the people who were really accomplished in sea kayaking lived elsewhere. So I started uh, importing them to Tybee, uh, as much for my own learning as for uh, as a as a way to build the business there. So I went off to a few symposiums and maybe more than a few symposiums and observed the models that other people were using, and then developed one that would work for us. And so we started the Sikai Georgia Symposium. That led from one thing to another, and through encouragement of friends and through my own interest, I uh, pretty much went to the top of the BCU and ACA systems concurrently. I stopped at Coach 5T in, in BCU. There were great changes going on there, and I was in the middle of selling Seekayak Georgia when I reached that point, and so uh, so I dropped. You know, I had a five-year non-compete, so I mostly dropped out of teaching for about a five-year period from 2006 to 2011. So during that time, what what'd you do? <laughs> <laughs> it's your you love, know, right? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So I didn't stop. I, I didn't stop kayaking. I just stopped teaching for money. I, I did several good kayaking trips. Uh, I went and joined Gordon in uh, in Scotland for a couple of weeks, and I went out to do a, a trip along the inside passage with uh, with a good friend there. But I, you know, I did my best to try and get my mind off of kayaking and uh, deal with uh, the other business uh, activities that I had going. And you know, I even tried uh, putting on a suit and tie for a while again and uh, reaffirmed that that was not the best choice for me. <laughs> I don't blame you on that one. I gave up that life a long time ago myself. That's good. That's good. So I'm to understand that sea kayak surfing is kind of a passion for you. Yeah, it's kind of an uh, it's an odd mix of things. Uh, when I when I first started kayaking uh, on the coast of Georgia, not many people surfed sea kayaks, but it's you know, but it's what I like to do. And Nigel himself would say, Dale, if you want to surf, you need a surf kayak. But but the the surf kayaking opportunities on on Tybee are not so great. Uh, shore break is not is not good, and there's not. Uh, there's not a point break there, so it's sort of a free-for-all uh, with short boards, and, and, I, and I did that for a while. But just offshore, about a mile offshore, where the water gets deep enough for you know, the break to be clean, uh, it is a great place for surfing sea kayaks. So, so I, I, I did that. I started doing that, and we started offering that as a course at the symposiums, and, and it's the course that filled uh, the most most of the time, for many years, and still, I think it still does. So you mentioned uh, the Inside Passage earlier, and uh, we're planning here to talk to that a little bit today about another area of Alaska, and I may get the pronunciation wrong, but Akaton Island? You know, I, I pronounce, I've mispronounced it myself for <laughs> many years. Uh, I pronounced it uh, Akutan, but, it, but I know a young woman who was a fisheries uh, biologist who moved to Onalaska for a while. I'm probably mispronouncing that as well. And she, she, she pronounced it Accutan. So I don't know what the exact pronunciation is. But so if you'll forgive me, I'll mispronounce it through the rest of this because I've always known it as Accutan. All right. So tell us a little bit about Accutan, where it's located, and why Accutan Island. Well, it's about halfway out the Aleutian chain, and there's a couple of reasons for for why Akaten. I don't know if you remember, if you know the name Stan Kladek, but uh, he mm-hmm. was the original uh, importer of NDK kayaks, and before that, uh, Valley kayaks. And he and Nigel were good friends, and they were looking for, Stan in particular, was looking to do a, an expedition to the Aleutians. He had, he had more of a, a, a cultural interest, he wanted to explore some some grave sites, and and, and I'm not sure that that was uh, that was the same thing that Nigel wanted to do. I'm not really sure that Nigel could afford to break away from NDK during the summertime anyway. But at some point in the in the negotiation, he had said, uh, "Well, maybe if we go look at some of these tide races." So there are three there are three large tide races in that area, maybe more that uh, are among the largest in the world. The Inaga race being the the one that uh, I found to be uh, the most the most challenging, but in any case, uh, Stan agreed with it. We would do that, and then it was we were able to to base out of Unalaska, which is the largest fishing port in the world, uh, and so it's uh, it's pretty sparse, or at least it was at the time. I'm sure it still is actually, and 
but it was uh, a place that we could ship kayaks to. It was a place that we could fly to. Uh, so that was, it was you know, the choice of uh, Akaten really was, was Nigel's choice. So I've had the opportunity to talk to uh, Justine Kurgenman, and we talked about her paddle along the Aleutian Island chain with Sarah Uden. And one of the things that Sarah had mentioned was the difficulty in researching the area and learning about the tides and, um, and, and conditions out there. You mentioned uh, the Inaga Tide Race, and you mentioned that there was a couple of other tide races out there. How did you go about researching the area and, and learning about the different, different races and what was going to happen? Well, I have to give my partner Richard credit for that. And just to explain how Richard came into the, into the equation, uh, in the end, Nigel decided not to go. He just couldn't break away from the factory at his busiest time of the year. So Stan, Stan chose uh, another partner to go with him. We also, uh, by the way, had a, there was a, there were, originally there were to be four of us, Nigel, Stan, a guy named Larry Koenig, who's an ER doctor out of Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana. Larry did a circumnavigation with a guy named Arthur Bear, who's the only person I, I, I think who's ever crossed the Gulf of Mexico solo. But Larry had done the circumnavigation with Arthur as well, and then myself. And people began dropping out, first with Nigel, then Larry. And after that, uh, Stan recruited... Uh, uh, someone else to go with him, Brian Day, who you know is well known in the in- industry now, was his much younger than Stan <laughs> in person, and uh, and so then I recruited uh, my own uh, of that, Richard Davis. And so in the end, Stan had a had a knee issue and he had to do some surgery, and so he dropped out, and along with him, Brian, and so it ended up just being Richard and myself. And so Richard did a lot of that planning, and I think I have to give some credit to. A friend uh, named Mike Robinson out of Savannah as well, who is a GIS uh, researcher. He is now for the um, Skidaway Institute. And so uh, between the two of them, they were able to come up with quite a lot of satellite information about expectations. It wasn't perfect. You know, when we got there, we found many things that we hadn't anticipated, like the buildup of of logs uh, in a place that has no forests you know, logs that came up from the Pacific Northwest on, you know, the Japanese current and were deposited in the bays around the, the Aleutian Islands. So it might be a four-mile paddle from the mouth up to a place where you would expect to camp inside the, in the bay, and you'd find that, that it was inaccessible, that you couldn't get out. Those sorts of things, you know, were, were often surprises. But we were able to anticipate, you know, where there would be a tide race and when. We didn't always follow the knowledge that we had at hand, but, and also our trip was much smaller than Justine's. Justine was a very practiced expeditioner by the time she did her Aleutian trip. I think she wrote me and asked me after she'd finished, you know, she said, oh, I'd heard that you did a trip once as well. And I said, yeah, Justine, but uh, mine was, uh, was Expedition 101 the hard way. <laughs> you, you know, you were coming to this after you know, many, many expeditions under your belt. So there were a lot of differences there. But I am still, but I'm surprised that they weren't able to, to find. You know, I, we had a point of contact in Unalaska who was a kayaker. His name was Jeff. I can't remember his last name right now, but Jeff was able to give us some tide tables as well, at least of the areas that we were, were planting to explore, much smaller 
uh, scope, much smaller expedition than what Justine was undertaking. So you mentioned you're based out of Unalaska. And so tell us about the trip itself. Uh, you know, did you just base and do day trips or tell us more about that? No, we loaded up uh, you know, to in Unalaska and departed from there, expecting to be gone three weeks to a month. And we were we were self-contained. Uh, you know, it's not difficult to find water there, so we really just had to carry food and medical supplies uh, and camping gear. You know, maybe I'll just back up. I mean, I'll try and honor your question, but I'll just back up a little bit to say that that Richard and I started this as baby expeditioners. So we started with a great deal of apprehension. You know, we had expected to have uh, Stan and, and Nigel along, both of who both of both of who had been on. Uh, well, you know, uh, Nigel is the original expeditioner for many of the world's first challenges, and so this would have been a small uh, trip for him, but it was a big trip for us. Sure. Anyway, no, we were not, they weren't day trips. We launched and uh, and it was our goal to leave from Unalaska and then get out to Analga. And from there to maybe the babies, if we could, if we could camp on the babies around Akutan and then back home from there. So it was uh, an out and back trip that was that we expected would take us two to four weeks, depending on weather. Okay. So now, how did you deal with that um, that apprehension of now having two you know, baby expeditioners? I'll call you as I'll use your words um, that had was different than the plan. How did you how did you manage that? Well, I think we well we came well prepared in terms of paddling skills, uh, logistical planning, uh, gear, equipment. I think we were we were ready for all of that, and and then of course you know we we moved with caution uh, and a realistic uh, approach to risk management early on, but. Uh, most of what we'd heard about the Aleutians proved not to be true for the first four or five, you know, days, maybe more. I don't remember exactly, but uh, you know, the terrible Aleutians that we'd heard about had this super high-pressure area sitting over at least that part of it uh, during the first half of our trip, and and so all this amp up that we had uh, proved not to be a problem. And of course, we had we had planned our crossings of the tide races at at you know the safest possible time at uh, at whatever the slack was for each of them, and we were we were just incredibly cautious on the way out the first half of the trip. I would say I would describe it as as us tiptoeing through a minefield on the way out, and then returning with absolute abandon, like horses to the barn on the way back. So. <laughs> You know, it, it just at some point it felt like the world had been crying wolf and all of this danger that we had overestimated proved not to be the case. And so we let the pendulum swing a bit far in the, in the opposite direction for the, for the trip home. So do you feel that, did you get lucky on that one or is, is the fear or the, the reputation overblown? You know, my my wife describes sea kayaking in general as dangerous because it's not so much of the time. And I think the Aleutians is just a larger scale of that. So we were ready to sit out any any rough weather. It, it was our intention to approach things with uh, a great deal of caution. 
you know, as the conditions uh, increased over time, we didn't feel like they were exceeding our capability to handle them. And for the most part, I think that was true. And, and that existed, that was, the, that was the case throughout the rest of the trip, except for about a four or five hour period on the next to the last day of the, of the expedition. So, so tell us a little bit about that. As conditions began to build, we tested them out uh, first just with empty boats going out to play and see what that was that was like you know when you when you get a weather report and i don't even recall if we had wave spacing in this in this instance but you get a weather report about surf conditions on the west coast and you hear things like 20 second spacing and people don't get uh excited about that but on the east coast if you get a, a call of 20 second spacing those waves are going to be enormous and they're going to be so fast that there's no way that you could catch them if you wanted to in a sea kayak. So we were not used to the, the meaning of the weather reports when we, were, when we got there. And most of the time they weren't available. So we were, in, unless we had VHF radio contact with a ship or with, with a port. And so we would get, you know, I, I think the weather report you know, got to be about 12 foot seas. I don't recall what the spacing was, but, but I, my experience of that was probably uh, eight to 10 second spacing 12 foot seas. You know, on, on the day that we had, that we finally tried to, uh, to race home, building up to that along the, along the way. And so we would go and we'd, we'd go out, we'd paddle it, we'd uh, seem fine. So we'd camp, so we'd, you know, pick up camp and take off and, and try and make it to the to the next spot. I don't remember all the campsites that we made. I do remember that we camped on the backside. We made it around Akatan and camped on the backside where the conditions had had not reached their maximum point. And we sat out that day, and we watched the whole day, looking at the uh, the seas out in front of us and thinking, we could do that. That's not a you know that's that's not too much of a challenge. We could do that. On the next to the final day, we launched in larger seas than we set out uh, the day before. And we came across some of the surprises that I have mentioned earlier, bays that were covered in, in logs that made it impossible for us to land. So our intended, our intended landing point, uh, two or three, I can't remember now, of them were, were blocked. And so each of these required, you know, sometimes... Uh, several miles in to to find out that we couldn't stay there and then uh, and then several miles back out. So when we finally arrived uh, at Inalga, which was our last chance to to take out prior to the Inalga race, we were quite hypothermic, actually. We didn't realize it, but we were hypothermic and probably dehydrated as well. So when we got out, we were able to get we were able to to, to get out of the boats at a place uh, that was not campable, but that we could at least stand up and, and get out. We, we became very, very chilled and had to get back in the boats to get paddling again. So I think we're at about the 45 mile point uh, is, you know, when I look back on it and when, when we did the calculations at that point. And, you know, when the, the water temperature there is, is quite low, I mean, just uh, uh, several degrees above freezing, but but certainly not something that you could survive in the water with a dry suit, even you know well insulated. But uh, the you know when you're when it's raining and when you're punching through the tops of of twelve foot 
waves and you're, you're soaked all the time, it really doesn't do any good to add insulation because that just becomes soaked anyway. The, you reach the capacity of the Gore-Tex to breathe. And so we didn't. We wore dry suits, but we were uh, fairly uh, uninsulated uh, beneath. So that was okay as long as we were you know, burning calories and, and paddling hard, but uh, not when you stop, obviously. So, you know, they talk about stumbles, fumbles, mumbles when you're, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a sign for hypothermia. And of, and of course, we, we knew that. But definitely, when we got out of the boats at Inaga, we were stumbling and fumbling and mumbling <laughs> and making bad decisions. So, so we, uh, we launched. We launched anyway. And we launched uh, headed for home, which would have been another you know, 20 miles to get back to the, the first landing spot from there at, uh, at Unalaska and not yet home, but just the, the next campable spot. So, uh, so it, was a, it was a foolish decision for sure to launch. And we happened to do it just pretty close to the max, I guess that was the max flood at the time uh, for the race. So so we got to see the race in its uh, in its full glory. <laughs> uh, so aside from the uh, the log choke beaches, uh, what were your biggest challenges in the trip? You know, getting there's uh, getting uh, getting past some of the sea lion rookeries. There were you know, this is probably at the time this is that's the that was the largest concentration of stellar sea lions anywhere in the world. When the seas were large on the outside, you could paddle in in the protection of the of the scaries between the outer break and the inner cliffs. But that puts you dangerously close to the the rookeries and the, to the male sea lions were were not at all happy about that. So, so I found that to be a great challenge on a couple of occasions. Any particularly uh, sketchy moments along the way that you wanted to share? Well, you know, there was one where Richard was in front of me and had uh, he had just cleared this, you know, the closest place and uh, the, the place that put us the closest to this large male. And I had to follow him. And the, the male had moved to the edge of the rock face and was, <laughs> was threatening me uh, not to do that. But I really had no place else to go. Outside were huge breaking waves on the, on the rock faces and... Uh, and so it was either it was either go ahead or turn around, and it probably would have exposed me to his uh, angst longer to uh, to turn around. And so I just avoided eye contact and, and paddled as uh, fast as I could to get past him. Well, he did. He launched, and uh, and I could you know he made this enormous splash just behind me, and and, and created a wake that I surfed forward. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, let's not, you know, be uh, foolish. There's no way I'm going to outsurf a, uh, a sea lion. So he could have, if he if he wanted to do me harm, he could have. But uh, but he didn't. He chose not to. And the funny story behind that is that uh, I had a good friend. Uh, his name is Jamie King, who worked for U.S. Fish and Wildlife in Alaska doing uh, sea lion research. And so I, when I when I got back, I, I called Jamie and said, Jamie, I, I was you know I was way too afraid to have my to my hands on a camera at the moment. And so, do you have any good photographs of sea lions that I could use to uh, to 
to describe that uh, that circumstance. And he said, oh yeah, I've got lots of sea lion photographs. And so he sent all these photographs of him underwater playing with, you know, the females. <laughs> and uh, they, you know, looked non-threatening in any way. It was, uh, it was, it was really, it was funny actually. Uh, <laughs> and I, he came away with, I came away with a very different view of, uh, of sea lions than he did. But. Certainly. Yeah. There are also there are also lots of uh, sea otters in the area, and there were you know it was it, it was a it was a period where they were you know raising their very young and teaching them to swim. And I, there were more than one occasion where we paddled by too closely, and you could see you know the conversation going on between the the young pup and the and the mother you know saying no, I'm not ready yet, and the mom saying we're going to dive. You know? <laughs> And, uh, but coming up okay. But see, an enormous amount of wildlife there with, uh, you know, so many birds. Uh, I think still the largest uh, auklet rookeries left were there. And lots and lots of puffins and guillemots and mures. And, uh, so it was, uh, it, it, in fact, at times the, you know, the air was so full of birds that, that you were amazed that there was never a collision. I mean, not just with each other, but with you know, one of us. Yeah. Now, did you run across any other settlements or any other people, really? Well, there's actually a fish processing plant on the uh, on uh, Akatan Island, and I'm sure there's some research stations there. There's an active volcano. Uh, so, yes, I had met a roving uh, city manager on the plane on the way over, which itself is a, is a, is a great story. Um, and she had uh, told us about a place that, uh, that you know, other city officials stayed. And so she set us up to stay in a place on the, on the backside of Akaten. So we, there was one night that we didn't camp, you know, and maybe it was two, I can't remember now, but we, we met the mayor of the little, uh, little village there. It's actually called a city. But it's tiny. I mean, there might be 300 residents and, uh, and then a lot of seasonal fish workers. Yeah, the, the flight to get to Akatan is, uh, it comes out of Anchorage. And it's done on a, a 737 and it's, uh, that has, that's specially modified to land at this, this crazy airstrip on, um, in Alaska, uh, that's right beside. I mean, it, it's a it's carved out of a mountain, so the winds around that are incredible. It's always a windy place anyway, but uh, but you can imagine the shear forces of the wind as you as you go from laminar air to disturbed air on the edge of the of, of the mountain. So the 737s are equipped with enormous brakes and and reverse thrusters that you wouldn't find on a normal aircraft, and the and the seating is is backwards in the plane. Uh, so instead of, you know, I, all the uh, all the cargo that they carry goes in the front uh, two thirds, and in the back they carry the passengers facing rearward. So when they land, they do so at full speed, you know, whatever that is, two hundred plus knots, and uh, uh, so that they can deal with the turbulence. And when they get wheels down, then they, uh, you know, hit those enormous brakes and activate the reverse thrusters and you know you feel about a g or two force which is why you're you know positioned backwards for landing and a lot of days they can't they can't land so 
it's about uh, a four hour flight out from Anchorage. And when they get there, if the if the winds aren't aren't uh, satisfactory, they turn around and fly back to Anchorage with a full load. So the flight that I took out, uh, when I got to the airport, it looked like a refugee zone because you know, there are all these people there to work the fishing industry, the boats and the processing plants who who had flown back. They had done the, the eight hour round trip and were sitting in the airport in Anchorage waiting for the next flight that could take them. And if, and of course, you know, you you wait for space available. But uh, so we bypassed them and we're lucky enough to to get in. But, you know, the expedition could have been quashed just on the on the basis of, of missing that flight. So how did you get gear out there? We packed everything in our boats. We put our boats in and we crated up our boats and then we sent those out via common carrier to Seattle where they were put on a barge. And then those were carried out to, you know, with all the other supplies and fishing gear to to Unalaska where our local area contact that, that Stan had actually researched in that. Uh, Jeff was able to go down and uh, and pick the boats up off the barge via tracker and take them to his place where, you know, they awaited us in the, and and I think ours arrived uh, almost two months early, uh, and the the crates had been badly damaged by the time they arrived, but the boats were still intact. How long was that shipping process? I think it was, you know, I, I think it was probably four months from the time that we sent the boats off until the time that we arrived. Wow. Uh, so we made, you know, we wanted to make sure that they were there. So, so what did you learn from the trip and how can you apply those lessons? Or how did you apply those lessons, I guess? I, I think that the thing that I learned was that we needed, we needed more successive approximation. You know, in the in the end, we, uh, we everything turned out okay. We handled it, but it was um, uh, we we exposed ourselves to more that first time than we should have. So we were taking we were baby expeditioners taking on the largest tide races in the world. You know, maybe we should have taken on <laughs> not quite the largest tide races first time out, or maybe done done it in a place that wasn't quite so remote. That trip was the brainchild of Nigel Dennis and Nigel, and at that point in his career, that would have been a very appropriate and maybe not such a, you know a hard paddle for him to get his head around. So, it's not that Nigel is a big lover of surfing. He's you know he surfs. His skills are are strong, but he wanted a place that that would be a challenge for him. You know, in terms of its combination of uh, of remote access and sea conditions and, you know, weather prediction uh, requirements and, and ability to assess the, the conditions that he was likely to face. You know, we had all the technical skills and we had the academic knowledge of that. You know, we, we were on top of the didactic part of the exercise. We were just, we didn't have the, the experience to prepare as well as we should have for the psychological part of that uh, of that challenge. So build up as opposed to go big the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get some experience on it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Don't, don't choose the biggest expedition you can find. <laughs> what else would you do different other than maybe go with a smaller expedition at that time? Uh, it might take more people. Two is tough. 
when, you know, I, it's a third person I think is useful in the decision making process and certainly would have been useful in the, in the rescue process. Yeah, I think, you know, there was a, there was a significant age difference between Richard and myself. And so Richard placed a lot of faith in my judgment that, that I think was, you know, a little misplaced. And I, and I think a third person along would have, would have, I mean, not that Richard, Richard's, a, he was an adult, but uh, and he could make his own decisions, but uh, but a third person might have uh, might have added a little bit more uh, wisdom to the decision making process. All right. So I assume, in terms of equipment, you used NDK boats. Uh, <laughs> no yeah, way. we we both had explorers, and they were they were perfectly suited for the for that challenge. Okay. Yeah. What other equipment did you use on the on the trip? You know, we had some. It's it's mostly old uh, equipment by today's standards. I mean, not dry. I mean, we used these Kokatat XCR dry suits. Um, that's not. I mean, you know, I mean, there's some, been some minor developments in that. I used a lightning paddle that was a, a good surf paddle, and I used a, an old Lendl Nordcap for for the distance portion of that, which was not as good a surf paddle. But uh, you know there was a there was an old piece of uh, of gear that was made by Marmot uh, at the time. It was a it was a dry climb material. They had a they made it in a bag. Dry climb was one of those original. I mean, I mean, I'm sure that there've been fabrics that have made like that since then. But it it had a mechanical drying capability. It doesn't didn't require uh, heat transfer. It didn't wick. It actually. It actually absorbed moisture from you know the contact with your skin, moved it to the outside of a taffeta, you know exterior, and then evaporated uh, pretty quickly from there. And so, I had picked one up as an experiment. It was a little you know it's the size of a sleeping bag, but it turned out to be this incredibly useful piece of of gear because because as I said you know we'd get out of the boat and we'd be we'd be soaked. Uh, the dry suits wouldn't uh, weren't enough to keep you completely dry, and so I stripped down and jump into that little dry climb bag, and it would take about three minutes to dry off with that thing, and then I was dry enough that I could jump into a a, a sleeping bag, and I was using I was, we were both using down bags and uh, you know and bivy Gore-Tex bivvies, but you know we had to be very careful about the down bags. So for listeners' both, reference, this is uh, two thousand three, right? Yes, it was okay. eighteen years ago. Yeah, so we're a lot of. Go ahead. I was say we're just. It kind of puts a, uh, puts an age on the gear. It does, but uh, but you know a lot of it is still this is it's very similar, are almost exactly the same in many cases. So, we both use Bibler tents, uh, single wall Gore-Tex uh, four season tents. We probably could have gone lighter than that. It wasn't, you know, the air was cold, but it was not snowy cold. It was, uh, you know, it was 30s, uh, high 30s at night, uh, mid 40s during the day. It was not, it, it never got below freezing. Um, I forgot to ask earlier, what, what kind of distance did you do during the trip? Our longest day was about, oh, I, you know, all told about 60 miles. But we did a lot of, we had a lot of days that were shorter than that. And if you sat down and figured out the whole trip, it was... Uh, it was not a huge, uh, huge distance. There were a, a lot of uh, relatively short days in that. It was not a, yeah. It wasn't about the miles. It was about the experience and uh, the yeah. exploring the tide races and such. Yeah. All right. 
Um, what's your favorite paddling location? Favorite place you could go in the world? I, I was having a conversation with uh, my lead instructor at, at um, the Scottish National Center when I was when I was working on my level coach five for the BCU. He was a skier, and and I had been for a period of time, not a lifelong skier, but for a period of time, I had been a skier, and I and I loved what I when I did of it. And uh, and you know, Aviemore has a ski mountain as well as a is a kayaking center there, and so. It's not known for its its uh, epic skiing. In fact, it's kind of rocky and icy most of the time. But I asked him because he takes he took trips all around the the world and to the Alps. And I said, "What's your favorite skiing location?" And he said, "You know, I've been a lot of places that were really great, but my very best days have been right here at Aviemore. So I'd have to say this is my favorite skiing location." And so I would have to say the same thing about Tybee Island. No, it's not the most epic place I've ever been, but over the years, collectively, it has provided uh, the most satisfying, the most number of epic days. So, it's yeah. where, the, where the most of your memories are made. Yes, yes. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Sea Kayak USA. You know, Sea Kayak USA is just an evolution of uh, all the other Sea Kayak businesses that I've owned. At, at you know, its primary function at this time is to uh, is to provide you know, import and wholesale distribution for NDK Sea Kayaks. But it's also the business that provides adventure travel programs and and coaching uh, programs. You know, for uh, both at home and far and uh, you know through these these last 18 months or longer of covid uh, the operational part of that has reduced pretty dramatically but i've still run you know mostly it's been it's been limited to instructor trainer checkouts i'm a, i'm an ite so instructor trainer certifications for the aca where it feels like it can be pretty controlled so how can listeners reach you and, and learn more about you and maybe the expedition and, and more about Sea Kayak USA? You can reach me through SeaKayakUSA.com or via SeaKayakingUSA uh, at gmail.com. Excellent. All right. So I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to talk to you and to share the, the story of Akaton Island, if we're pronouncing it correct, or if we're not, sorry for, uh, <laughs> for that. Uh, but really appreciate the opportunity. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Um, Dale, I do have one last question, and it's a question that I ask all of our guests. And, and Dale, that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? You know, two, my, two names come to mind. Uh, Larry Koenig, who I mentioned, was scheduled on this expedition and didn't come, and uh, his good friend Arthur Bear. The pair of them circumnavigated uh, the Gulf of Mexico, and Arthur actually crossed it solo. Uh, so I, I, would, I would love to hear either or both of their stories. Excellent. Well, I will definitely uh, I'll connect with you offline, see if we can get any, uh, any information and we can get an in introduction to them and see if we can get either Larry or Arthur or both of them on the show. Excellent. Well, Dale, again, thank you very much for the opportunity. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you, and I wish you the absolute best, and uh, maybe we'll hear about a future expedition from you. Thanks, John. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, power to the paddle, 
is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. My favorite quote from this episode is from Dale's wife. Sea kayaking is dangerous because most of the time it's not. That speaks volumes to the complacency that can creep in if we're not paying attention. And Dale and Richard were paddling some pretty big water through the Inaga Pass, and they certainly had to pay attention. In our next episode, we're going to hear from Sean Gresser. And Sean is a referral from Mark Sundin from episode 37. And Sean's going to share her story of her epic 32-hour nonstop solo of the Bass Strait. As always, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.